Now, what are these called? Moony faces? Dollar runes? Doubloons? Do, do, Dollar runes, right? Dollar, 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 Dollar dues. Dollar dues. Dollar dues and moon kazoons. And moon pies. So, Dollar dues and moon kazoons. and moon kazoons. Kazoons. So, Evan gets one moon kazoon and two Dollar dues. Dollar dues, Dollar dues, moon kazoo. Welcome to Witch Game First, where we boldly explore the hilariously huge world of board games. Did we unearth any hidden treasures you've been missing out on? Let's find out. First up, we're the boys that fear no noise whilst the thundering cannons roar in Clear the Decks. Next, we kick back in our posh lairs as we get other adventurers to quest for us as Lords of Waterdeep. And lastly, we gather intel to quell conflicts, crush coups, and undermine uprisings in CIA. I'm your host, Celeste DeAngelis. Now let's meet the rest of our brave and intrepid panel. Hello, I'm Evan Bernstein. Quick is the word and sharp is the action. Hi, I'm Ed Povlaitis. You look like the adventurous short. Interested in making a quick bit of coin? I'm Joe Unfried. I could tell you why I was in Reykjavik last week, but then I'd have to do something unpleasant. Hi, I'm Mike Grenier, and I'm the hook. Our first game up this week is Clear the Decks, designed by Chris Pinion. Published by Crispy Games in 2019. Number of players, 1 to 4, ages 10 and up. Playtime, 30 to 90 minutes. Okay, when we collected this game as back wages from the quartermaster, what were our first thoughts? Mike? I'm ready to make stuff go boom. Evan? Avast! Give him the 36-pound grape. That ought to put a blast in their mizzen mast. Ed? 18 and 24 pounders are ready for your orders, Captain. Joe? Wow, do I really get to run my own gun deck? I am a freak for Age of Sail Adventures. It's going to be hard for me not to hold fast to this game. But before we let the waters roar, Evan, tell us a little bit about how it's played. In Clear the Decks... Each player manages their own gun deck of three cannons using a hand of cards that includes ammunition, officers, marines, and tactics. Depending on the difficulty setting, the enemy ship is created using a deck of cannon, structure, crew, and event cards, which will attack your ship every turn based on what cards are on deck. You must work together to sink the enemy ship before it sinks you. So did you guys feel like you were really in the mix of a gun battle on a tall ship? I was kind of expecting a more fast-paced game, actually, uh, with explosions and dice rolls and randomness. Oh, there was explosions. I went... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, this game is really about keeping your gun decks organized and making sure uh, all the decks have what they need, right? That's kind of like what it was really like on gun decks. You can't have it disorganized. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Yeah, disorganized space with all that gunpowder and cannonballs laying around. Yeah, you don't want to find out one of your gun decks has had a mishap. The only thing that was missing was the uh, lieutenant officer screaming orders at me while I was, you know, loading and repairing and doing other things. I had to imagine that in my own mind. (laughs) Yeah, some of the art looked like that. They had one of the guys like pointing and yelling and people were loading cannons. Evan, if you didn't feel like you were under pressure there, then that was my fault. I'm sorry. I should have screamed at you more. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. I respond to to screaming at high volumes. Yeah. So speaking of the art on the cards, this is primarily a card game, right? Yeah. Every player has their own hand of cards that they're managing in order to keep their deck gun running. Yep. And you got to have that ammo or you can't shoot anything. 
Yeah, it's amazing how fast you run out of ammo, isn't it? You have to draw the ammo from a deck of other mixed cards, too, so sometimes you end up with none in your hand, but they had a pretty good solution for that, is you can take one of your actions during your turn to receive a card from somebody else. So you'll shout out, hey, uh-huh. I need some grape shot, or I need, you know, a chain shot, and then somebody will hopefully have one to pass to you. That is a really cool mechanic. I think the other thing that's neat about the, the way the mechanic works is the, the tempo. You have to maintain a reasonable tempo. You can can't just shoot all your cannons and expect to have something left next turn. Ammo gets more difficult as you advance through scenarios. So if you play a simpler scenario to start, you're less likely to run out of ammo. But it's going to get more complicated as you get better at the game and you choose tougher scenarios. Yeah, and Ed was talking about the tempo too. That's part of it. It takes you a while to reload your guns once you shoot them. So if everybody just blows out all their guns and ammo right on the first round, next round everything on the other ship is going to have a chance to retaliate without you having a chance to deal with it. They can retaliate with impunity. Yeah, but it's important to coordinate with your partner or partners in order to maintain communication, clear communication. One of you... Keep heavy fire on the enemy ship while the other has to do their repairs, their reloading and other things, and then it'll be your turn kind of back and forth. Keep that enemy busy is the key. All right, I can sink this guy. You can sink him? Yep. Do it! Boom, round shot. He's going down. I think my favorite part was the option to roll a gun to one of your neighboring players. <laughs> yep. The co-op aspect of everybody being on the same ship against the AI ship uh, was felt most in that option where you could trade ammo and trade guns. I guess a loose cannon isn't always a bad thing. Yeah, they must be having a really <laughs> bad day. They, they need a whole cannon for you. <laughs> there were these great mats uh, to place all your cards and keep them organized. Ed, where did those mats come from? Were they in the original set? No, the player mats were kicked out of special. For five bucks, you can actually get these, uh, basically the mouse pad to add like a little player mat for you. Yeah, it's a little neoprene mat with a whole bunch of spaces to put specific cards on and keep track of stuff that you're doing. And damage, you can keep track of your damage down at the bottom. So I love mats that allow you to organize your cards. That's one of my favorite things. If a game can afford to put a player mat in the box, I really appreciate it. While the player mat is not strictly necessary, it's nice having a guide to what goes where. And I thought they had a really clever way to make this game replayable, too. They uh, they make you build the ship that you're about to fight against with a little chart that comes inside the rulebook. So if it's a bigger ship, it'll have more guns. They'll be placed differently. They'll have more cards that you have to get through before you make the ship spring a leak and eventually sink. Yeah, they might have more or heavier cannons on them. Mm-hmm. And a deadlier array of stuff that'll be in the decks. There were a lot of options for that, weren't there? Was it? Oh, yeah. Well, they had it scaled not only to the the difficulty of the ship, but they also scaled it to the number of players that were playing, too. So you had this big chart full of stuff that you can add. Yeah, based on the number of players, you can counter one of nine different ships. Yep, and the the little boards the ships came with, too, were made so that you could adjust the size of the ship. So you could have it have less decks on it if you're playing with less people or if you're playing against a less difficult ship. Because clearly the cutter is going to be a lot smaller than the frigate. Of course, everybody knows a cutter is smaller than a frigate. (laughs) Duh. (laughs) Yeah, we played against a little cutter, and uh, it seemed pretty easy. Um, So maybe that lowered my enjoyment of the game a little, because I don't like to start on easy mode necessarily, but it did go quicker that way. 
Yeah, it certainly did. I mean, I guess uh, you could have uh, faced off the frigate, got sunk, and go, well, uh, that was fun, right? <laughs> <laughs> Great. Two shots, you're gone. The rule book versus the video tutorial, guys. What do you think? Mm, I had a tough time with the rule book. Yeah, the rule book has a lot of words in them. <laughs> and I know lots of rule books too, but the organization of this one, I found a challenge. Then I found out there was a video, right, Joe? So there's a link to the YouTube video and a slideshow right there on the site. That's handy. I, I'd rather watch a video than read a rule book anyway. It makes me feel like I'm getting a hands-on experience, which is the way I learn. And in this case, it would have been really valuable. I, I was mm. struggling with that rule book. I enjoy videos as well, but I was able to get through the rule book fairly well on my own, but I had the advantage of reading it the night before. We don't all have that kind of time. We're not all sitting back with a sherry and some classical music flipping through our rule books. In a smoking jacket. And yeah, in our, le in our leather chair, in our library. Uh... I actually have a hard time imagining that you're not doing that at night. <laughs> Good point. <laughs> I do that to go to sleep at night. I roll up with my favorite rule book, now flip through a few pages, <laughs> and this way I have the uh, dreams of sugar plums and rule books in my head. So you can dream of uh, cannon fire and... Boarding parties. You can actually get to that desperate moment in this game, right? You can. Oh, yeah. It wouldn't be a pirate game without boarding parties. Yeah, it's interesting how the, the boarding parties always come out at the end. Like, right when you start close to sinking the ship, their boarding party starts getting on your ship, and now you're not just fighting back cannon fire, but you also got borders to deal with. Mm -hmm. It's the last desperate attempt to mm -hmm. save the ship. Yep, and when you get down to the bottom of that deck where you're trying to sink the ship with, when it springs a leak, the boarding parties start yeah. coming out furiously. Yeah, well, that's what Marines are for. <laughs> that's right. Oh, yeah. So one of us had Marines on board, right? The rest of the sailors might think they're, you know, they're kind of a pain to have around most of the time. But <laughs> yeah, these annoying layabouts who do nothing. They don't climb the rigging. They eat the food. Oh, yeah. <laughs> they just right? walk around looking menacing with their guns. They make fun of the sailor uniforms. I mean, come on. They're super annoying until you really need them, and then they're, they're your best friend. <laughs> right. <laughs> save us. Save Help. us. That's right. I've uh, played this game with Christopher Pinion a few times at conventions, and if you ever run into him and get a chance to play with him, you should. Why should we? Is there a reason? Because he's a cool guy. <laughs> <laughs> he knows the rules. Yeah. He knows the rules. <laughs> <laughs> okay, explorers, it's time to dig up or bury, clear the decks. Mike? It seemed like a decent game, but the box cover gave me a little bit of a false expectation. Uh, even despite that, I think I'd dig it up for another try. Evan? Loader ready, sponger ready, gunner ready. Dig ye up. Ed? I found the game easy to learn and play. Dig this up or we'll all sink to the watery depths. Joe? I've enjoyed the game every time I've played it. Dig it up. Despite the difficulty I had trying to understand the rulebook, there is a fair cannon fight simulation here. That's good enough for me to dig up. Joe, where can you find it? Clear the Decks is available from crispygamesco.com for $45. Extra playmats are available for $5. If you have thoughts about Clear the Decks, let us know. We are at Which Game First on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. 
Our next game up this week is Lords of Waterdeep, designed by Peter Lee and Rodney Thompson, published by Wizards of the Coast in 2012. Number of players, 2 to 5, ages 12 and up. Playtime, 60 to 120 minutes. All right, when our quest yielded this game, what were our first thoughts? Joe? At first glance, I thought this would be a dungeon crawl, but it seems to take place on the streets of the city. Evan? The second we cracked the box open, Mike started making up ridiculous names for things. <laughs> and Celeste and I, giving the water deep game uh, or world much less credit than it deserves, totally bought Mike's BS. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you want a five moon kazoons? Wow, that's a good name for those. Wait, what? <laughs> yeah, I wanted to pay for everything in dollary dudes. <laughs> Ed? Why do the dirty work of a veteran when you can pay others to do the dirty work and get most of the profit for none of the rest? Mike? Now that I'm an older guy, the idea of sending the young, hungry adventurers out in my place sounds amazing. Right? So I play a rich lord sending out minions to hustle up quest rewards? I could get used to this type of role-playing. But before we have someone else record this review for us, Evan, tell us how it's played. In Lords of Waterdeep, you are powerful lords vying for control of the City of Splendors. You recruit adventurers to go on quests on your behalf, earning rewards and increasing your influence over the city. Purchase new buildings to expand the city and open up new actions on the board. You may hinder or help the other lords by playing intrigue cards as they fall for your carefully laid plans. After eight rounds of play... The player who has accrued the most victory points wins the game. Kind of wanted the little sinister laugh after a carefully laid plan. (laughs) (laughs) I've played a ton of like worker placement games in the past, but I feel like this one being set in the D&D world, which I'm very familiar with, was cool. It really wasn't your characters that were adventuring. You were actually sending people out to adventure for you. Yeah, the workers are all part of the big four. You know, they're, they're warriors, mages, priests, or thieves. I kind of liked that it gave you like a little bit of like a bird's eye view, which kind of helped fit with the, your view of the map. You get to see the whole city. I mean, I get the idea that it, that's maybe just the busiest part of the city. Yeah, that's what it seemed like, because there's people to hire all over the place. I really liked the board layout and the map, because I, as a big fan of the Forgotten Realms world, I instantly recognized Waterdeep from its map. So Forgotten Realms is a bunch of uh, D&D novels, right? Oh yeah, and it's become a full full scale play world that people have written their own like fan histories in and stuff too. Many adventures told, and now you get to see other duty adventures from your high view in the tower. <laughs> <laughs> yep, it was fun to look at the quest cards that you're you're doing, and that's how you get your victory points is by doing picking a quest and doing it. But on there, it tells you what the cost of finishing the quest would be. So one might say it takes six warriors and one rogue and four gold. So I can imagine myself, you know, having the rogue go pay somebody off to sneak behind with a bunch of warriors and assassinate somebody or something like that. <laughs> what a cackle. <laughs> was that a cackle? That was. <laughs> cackle. Sorry, if I... Tipped my hand. I actually enjoy the aspect of building a different building because every game's a little bit different based on what buildings make it out into play. There, that's how you get your resources. You build new buildings and they give you different options, which are better than the default options that start on the map. What did you guys think of the rarity of different types of characters? 
That was almost twice as hard to get yourself a mage or a cleric, and they're definitely important to a lot of missions. Well, not everybody can sling bells. (laughs) True, true. Anybody can pick up a kitchen knife and go out and try and attack people. (laughs) Are you belittling the job of a warrior, Celeste? (laughs) And everybody knows that Waterdeep is thick with thieves, so. Yeah, Mike, isn't that that how warriors start training? Kitchen knives? Yeah, they just grab a bunch of kitchen knives, and the ones that actually don't die from the training are official warriors. (laughs) Hey, that's a good good system as any. I, (laughs) I guess so. They learn in the school of hard knocks. Wizards actually have to read books. You know which space I found the most fascinating? It was the Waterdeep Harbor. And that's where you would go. You place your minion there. And you have to go there if you want to play your intrigue cards. But it's not just that. At the end of the placement of everybody's meeples, you then are allowed to move that particular meeple off of the Waterdeep Harbor and place it in one of the other unoccupied spots. So it's almost like getting a bonus or a half bonus move yeah, I was kind of counting it. it as a more like a three quarters or a half of an action because all the spots that other people wanted are taken up by that point and the workers actually block spots from other people coming in. So when you take that piece and go last, you, you have less choices, but it's still really nice. Definitely. It hits home a little more strongly at the beginning of the game when there are fewer buildings built and fewer places to go, fewer options to to move that, that particular meeple. Uh, as the game expands and the buildings expand, uh, you know, your, your options do open up a little bit more. One of the ways you get your hands on those intrigue cards is going to Castle Waterdeep. And what that does is gives you an intrigue card to use later and gives you the first player marker. And you have that until somebody else goes to that spot in a different turn and takes it away from you. Right, Celeste? (laughs) Yeah. So first off, it was very clear and easy to understand what each spot on the board did. Most classic worker placement games, it's like you have to choose where you're going to move to. There's no rolling the dice and hoping you land where you want to. You just go there. However, you have a limited amount of resources and you have to uh, decide carefully what's going to be the most successful choice for you every given turn. So I decided to just focus on playing first and getting a small amount of resources at the same time. That didn't work out too good for me. (laughs) You had a lot of intrigue, though. (laughs) I got to go first, yes. And I ended up getting a lot of cards, but um, I just didn't complete quests fast enough. I could always get to to place my guy first and get my, you know, the cherry choice of where to go. But without quests to accomplish, it didn't really mean much. That is because some quests, you can yield 25 victory points for completing a single quest. That's a lot. It's huge considering some quests are you can only get four with. But I think those 25-pointers, though, you need to gather a lot of resources for them. One of the things that makes Waterdeep a you know stand out from other fantasy settings is that I, I guess there are 15 Lords of Waterdeep, but most of them are not known, and there's a lot of speculation about who might be on that no, in that ruling body. I happened to draw the one because every player draws a card at the beginning of the game as to which Lord of Waterdeep, you know, they're taking the role of. And I happen to draw the paladin. Uh, And as it happens, that particular character has a four-point bonus on every quest that is a piety quest and a four-point bonus on the quest reward of any warfare quest. So I was searching for warfare and piety quests, and I 
came up with a lot of them, and I racked up a lot of points very fast. Yeah, you as well, Celeste. You got a lot of piety quests, but... <laughs> yes, I did. <laughs> Fat lot of good they did me. <laughs> One of the things that I learned from the first time I ever played this game was that Getting the high-value quests is really worthwhile because you can only do one quest per turn, so you better make the most of it. And there's only eight turns. Yeah, there's only eight. So once the eighth turn is over, that's it. You couldn't have done more than eight quests, so make them count. I was so focused on uh, getting good positioning in the beginning that I didn't start questing until third turn, I think. And that was a real mistake. You have to be questing every turn. I know. You try to build your engine in this game, but a quarter of the game or a third of the game is over by the time you get yourself rolling. It's probably too late. That's the delicate balance. You can fall into the trap of trying to get really good buildings into play, and uh, they don't really do as much for you at the end of the game. So... This is a classic game by the makers of Dungeons and Dragons. So knowing that, what did we think of the art and the quality of the components? The art is just in line with what you would expect from Dungeons and Dragons in Wizard of the Coast. Some of the best art in the game is on the quest cards. A couple of the cards that I had, I mean, and they're not big cards, but they had gripping action scenes in a couple of them. You're right. They're little playing cards. And so many times when we play these games, the little playing cards do not have good art or rather do not have enough space to show their art. But somehow the arrangement of these cards really shows off the art and still has all the information you need to play the card well. Almost as if they like have a company big enough to throw out a game like Magic the Gathering, which is based on cards and art. Yeah. Magic the what? If you look at the credits here, Wizard of the Coast had over 20 people working on the card illustrations. And they use that giant stable of people to do a really good job at marrying the theme of this game with the art that's on the cards itself and the functionality as well. What about the map itself? I love the map because each building, and there's apparently thousands of them on this ma- on the on the game board which is a map each one has their own they're unique each building is unique and some people know waterdeep so well they would have told you which street that was <laughs> one of your options during your turn is to actually build one of those buildings and the benefit of that is that you'll get any victory points that were placed on them because each turn you take a stack of victory points and put them on the unpurchased buildings. Um, you also have the ancillary benefit of whenever somebody else uses your building because they're available to everybody, uh, you get a little bit of a bonus to that. So maybe some resources or a couple victory points. Or some intrigue. It's a fun option. I really liked it, so I used it a lot, but it wasn't enough to keep up with questing in my case. I, I think I overused it or didn't certainly didn't balance it properly. You can't build a lot of buildings and succeed. You can build maybe one or two. Well, if you take a building like that and you get a award whenever any other player comes to use your building, your fellow players, your opponents have other buildings to go to. Well, you'll get it. you'll get the benefit of that later too, though. So everybody is going to get a chance at it. It gives more spaces to go to and less chances to be blocked. And the reason, Joe, that somebody might go to your building, even though they're giving you victory points, is because the buildings that you build, the buildings that players have an option to build are much more efficient. Are they, they are strictly better than their original buildings. They're strictly better. Okay, explorers, it's time to dig up or bury Lords of Waterdeep. 
Joe? This game is not especially hard to understand, but it can go so many different ways that it should always hold a surprise or two. That's a good reason to dig it up. Evan? I liked this worker placement game. Lots of options and relatively easy to follow the mechanics. Dredge it up. Mike? It's a solid game for its type, and it's set in a great backdrop, so dig it up. Ed? This is a great gateway to worker placement game. I love the theme. Dig it up. The balance of this game felt a little off, and the nature of the quest seemed dull to me, so I'm going to bury it and play a real D&D game instead. Ed, where can you find it? You can find Lords of Waterdeep at local and online stores at retail for about 50 bucks. If you have thoughts about Lords of Waterdeep, let us know. We are at Which Game First on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Our last game up this week is CIA Collect It All, designed by Randy Lubin and Michael Masnick, published by Digetic Games in 2018, number of players 2 to 5, ages 14 and up. Playtime, 30 minutes. Okay, when our assets brought this game in from the cold, what were our first thoughts? Ed? I never met anyone who claimed to work for the CIA, almost as if there's no such agency. Evan? See ya! Oh, that's not how it's pronounced? Mike? Culinary Institute of America? Is this a food game? Joe? Kickstarter backers of this game were adamant for it to reflect actual CIA training. Maybe I can learn to be a super spy. Wait, 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 wait. Does this CIA icon on the box stand for Central Intelligence Agency or Collect It All? Because that's also written on the box. I am already confused. And I haven't even gotten my first mission objective yet. But before we give you our intel on this game, Evan, tell us how it's played. In CIA Collect It All... Players take on the role of agents who are collecting intelligence and tackling security threats over multiple rounds. Players start each round with a hand of intelligence techniques and reality checks. Ten crisis cards are laid out in the center of the table, which have different aspects and difficulty ratings. On their turn, a player can attempt to overcome a crisis by playing a number of techniques that match the crisis's difficulty and aspects. Then, their opponents have a chance to play reality check cards that increase the difficulty of the crisis. The initial player can adapt by playing more cards from their hand. If they still have enough techniques to overcome the crisis, they take the crisis card and earn victory points equal to the number of techniques used. The game ends when a player has accumulated 10 victory points. Or does it? No, yes, it does. It actually does. A little little suspense there, but... uh. I don't trust you anymore. (laughs) A CIA game should be suspenseful, shouldn't it? Yes. Uh, Totally. (laughs) Well, unless you're trying to teach the the CIA stuff, then maybe they're trying to show it's all business. It's all regular day-to-day stuff that anybody could do, right? That's right. Mundane, everyday (laughs) action. Nothing to see here. Yeah, just going into the office, regular day. Put this envelope under this tree and uh, at this time and walk away. (laughs) (laughs) It's not a dead drop. I just accidentally dropped this envelope. (laughs) That's right. So each player gets a hand of cards and there's two types, right? The technique and the reality check. Mm -hmm. So you're going to use these techniques to stop crises. There's two modes to this game. You can either play it in regular mode or storytelling mode. So we started out by playing in regular mode. How did you think that worked? Well, 
it was kind of dry. <laughs> I mean, because I'm what I'm doing is I'm looking at my hand and I'm really just matching icons with each other. So the feel, I don't think, was quite there as far as me being immersed in the world of international spirings and intelligence gathering and these kinds of things. I was just looking at symbols, trying to match symbols and block other people from matching their symbols. And that was kind of it. I think it's just to play the game. Is it more of a set collection game? Sort of. You're, you're not collecting sets. You're playing sets on things that are already on the board. So I guess it technically fits into that category. That's right. In the regular mode, you're all working sort of against each other. So you're looking at crises on the board. They're laid out in front of you. You're the CIA agents and you see crises that are arising, I guess, on the daily intelligence report. For example, one of the crisis cards reads Russia military sales. Ooh. Or how about this? Weaponized UAV proliferation. Yeah. (laughs) Taliban resurgence, China counterintelligence purge. Bolivia economic reform. Yeah. So you'll see, so basic crisis layouts like that. And then there's symbols at the bottom of the card. And you just kind of have to have techniques such as human intent, personal recovery debriefing, or mass intelligence like international monitoring system and you just play them if they have a matching symbol to the crisis and if you can defeat the crisis with enough of your symbols then you you get that crisis card as a victory point and the other players are just trying to stop you from doing that by playing reality checks which block certain symbol uses i think as a training tool this isn't amazing as far as that feeling you were talking about of being a super spy but it does give people a way to think outside the box or think of the kind of solutions you might have to a certain problem uh there's a little bit of flavor text on each card describing what you're actually doing in that case so when you match up that economy symbol to the other card that has the economy symbol you're saying okay a crisis like this maybe an angle we can take is using economic pressure to help solve it That didn't help me immerse myself into the world, though, because I'm looking at my cards and I'm saying, all right, this reality check card will counter any collection technique. And here's another one that will do the same. This card, which says something different, but the function is the same. Counter any collection technique. I didn't care if it said red tape or internal politics or whatever the descriptor was. I was just looking at what the function of the card was. Now, I did not play the storytelling version. Perhaps that is where the game really blossoms. I think that's right, Evan. So Evan had to go early. Mm. Then we turned the lights down. Evening was setting in. (laughs) And we started story mode. Mike, Joe, and I were able to play through a story mode. Mike, tell us how story mode is played. Well, it's a little different because instead of playing against each other, you are cooperating to try to beat these different crises that hit the board. Uh, Each turn that a crisis isn't dealt with, it gets a marker. And if you get too many markers on it, it basically explodes into an international incident. Uh, If you you lose two of these crises, the game is over and you lose. Um, And the, the really important difference is instead of just seeing the symbols and matching them up, you're expected to tell a little bit of a story of how you are solving the problem because of the card you're using and uh, play into the flavor text of the card you're playing against. Yeah, so let's say we're all together at the morning briefing and we get Nicaragua Revolution. So 
what would you be expected to do? So in story mode, the first thing I'll do is say, oh, okay, I have a card that affects the economy. So I might say I send in some operatives to put economic pressure on the rebels so they can't afford their guns and that will slow the crisis down. And that'll be one way to start solving it. So it causes you to think a lot more about the crisis because you're going to have to describe your solutions. So you're going, so you're really then being brought into the cards more. Joe, what did you think of story mode? I started basically with some short, jaded, clipped responses to some of the first crises that came up in the cards. There were things like, oh, we paid him off. Uh, or the guy in charge of the revolution, he got assassinated. He got shot by a sniper at one of his rallies. You were coming up with brilliant excuses, as if you were in the CIA conference room explaining to your boss what went wrong when something didn't work the way you wanted it. And you had such great excuses. He had some really good solutions, too. I remember that uh, he decided to bake fresh donuts or something to... Uh, I don't, what did you use the donuts oh, for? Oh, that would distract me from anything. <laughs> oh, that's right. Forget well, it. Yeah. I mean, of course, I had a New York apartment. Of course. Uh, and so I rationalized my success by saying I'd comprised dozens, I'm sorry, that I'd compromised dozens of international diplomats with my secret recipe homemade donuts made fresh every day behind a sliding secret door under my kitchen cabinet. <laughs> and this game <laughs> does leave you the flexibility to come up with wild stories like that. And the other added thing that happens in story mode is you get these resolution cards. When you finally defeat a crisis in story mode, you have to flip over one of these resolution cards. And it might say something like success, but the success is not likely to last or success, but you've made an enemy within the intelligence community. Or you might end up getting one that says failure and your job is on the line. Yeah, Joe actually got one of those. And because he had made up the story about the donuts, I was able to use that to add more cards to the mix by saying, well, I really don't want to lose Joe because those Friday donuts in the conference room are just so good. So I added more of my intelligence cards to help him succeed. Right. And that's an important part of the story mode, too, is that you're not only playing to the cards, you're actually adding to the story with the other players that are involved. And I think that exercise is much more useful for making a CIA agent learn what they need to learn. This was a successful Kickstarter, and it's a new game that's recently out. So the game designer says it's based on an actual CIA declassified game that they use to train agents. When I first saw this game, like when we played the first kind of mode, I was like, oh, no, if this is the way they're training our CIA agents, we're in big <laughs> trouble. But uh, the role playing aspect one actually seemed to have a lot more value. Yeah, but I think the uh, the role play version of something they added. The original game is what they got from the Freedom of Information Act. Oh, no. Oh, <laughs> OK, explorers, get your shovels out. It's time to dig up or bury. CIA collect it all. Mike? This didn't seem like much of a game at first on its own, but when we cracked open the role-playing mode, it was a really fun exercise that seemed to have some value, so dig it up. Evan? Since I am already in the CIA's database, which is true, <laughs> I have little choice but to dig this up. I can say no more. Ed? I could tell you what I thought, but the CIA had me rendition the day of the game. Joe? I have to dig this up. We're all in too deep now. 
wow, it looks like whatever I wrote in my dig up or bury section was redacted. So I guess I'll just have to say dig it up. Joe, where can you find it? CIA Collect It All was funded on Kickstarter, and you can find it online at diegeticgames.com for about $29. If you have thoughts about CIA, let us know. We are at Which Game First on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And that brings us to the end of our show. We look forward to hearing about all the game exploring you've done. If you'd like more perks or content from this show for just $3 a month, you can get our brand new exclusive post-show episodes by going to our website and clicking on Become a Supporter today. If you get a chance, please leave us a rating or a review anywhere on the internet. It really helps others find the show. Happy gaming, explorers! See ya! See ya!